Luke 18, 9 to 14, we're looking at the Judaism, Pharisaical Judaism versus Biblical Christianity number three. And we're going to wrap it up today. We're going to look at the tax collector, the prayer of the tax collector. Um, and I'm going to read uh, Luke 18, 9 to 14. <clears throat> and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, <coughs> but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I've got one little thing to tie up from last week. Uh, I just a, a comment on Islam. And um, just to note that you have to understand that Pharisaical Judaism had a very far reach. Muhammad had a lot of contact with the Jews, so he was exposed to Pharisaical Judaism. That's where he, they get their doctrine of salvation by works. He was exposed to a Roman Catholic, very corrupt form of Christianity. That's why they're very anti-images. Um, but Islam is, is a, a totally, it's really a punishment to those Aryan parts of the kingdom of, of, of old Rome. Islam, which is a creation of Muhammad, who uh, was a murderer, a rapist, a pedophile, and a, of course a false prophet, was influenced by Pharisaical Judaism, and he teaches a form of salvation by good works as well. According to the Quranic imagery, the divine judicial process is carried out by a means of a scale. And that's a mizan in Arabic, which is used for balancing the individual's good deeds against his bad deeds. Now, where do they get that from? They got that from the Talmud. That's from Judaism. Then those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls in hell. Will they abide? That's 23... Uh, 102 and 3, that's from the, uh, their script, their version, their so-called scriptures. <clears throat> the outcome of God's decision is wholly, totally dependent on the individual's personal righteousness. Moreover, they do not require faith in Christ and his work of atonement, but belief in the oneness of God, their Unitarians, like the Jews, they're Unitarians, which is a heresy. Both the Old and New Testaments teach the Trinity. God exists in three persons. God is one God who exists in three persons. There are interpersonal distinctions in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All from eternity. The Father begets the Son from all eternity. The Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son from all eternity. I don't have time to go into it here, but the Bible clearly teaches this. It is a super difficult doctrine, but we're required to believe it because Scripture clearly teaches it in the Old and in the New Testament. The prophecy of Muhammad, uh, that he was the last prophet. They have, to, they have to believe that. Muhammad's the last prophet. 
Uh, of course, the teachings of the Quran are clearly heretical, and the book contains many historical errors and internal self-contradictions. If you read it carefully, it's clearly uninspired. Whereas if you read the Bible carefully and you're not an atheist with your false presuppositions, the Bible is perfect. <clears throat> to obtain salvation, the Muslim must do the following works. Recite the confession, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and a pilgrimage to Mecca. And they're very insistent, you know, they believe that if you don't do this, you won't go to heaven. So that's why they insist on having their, they face Mecca three and pray three times a day, because they're required to do that. Uh, Ketaringa uh, writes, belief alone is not enough. Man must practically perform all the duties required of him by the Islamic faith. He must do the ibadat, devotional worship. Worship involves performing all the primary duties commanded by God and all other good deeds. <clears throat> End of quote. The proper, meticulous, correct performance of all religious duties is necessary to obtain eternal life. Now, the Quran does speak of God's mercy and forgiveness, but it involves God arbitrarily giving extra credit to one's works. And there's a lot of stuff I don't discuss here, but they talk about getting merits from Muhammad and things like that. Uh, it's a mess. It's a basket case. The only way to guarantee the forgiveness of sins, according to the Islamic system, is to engage in jihad and die in holy war. Surah 3195, C225, 3157-158, 4957-9596, 22, 28, 29. That's why, you know, why do these people love death? And they talk about this. We love, you guys love life, but we love death. Well, they believe that's the only way you can guarantee going to heaven. That's why these guys are willing to blow themselves up and die in obvious you know, futile battles, because they think they get, they go straight to heaven and get their, their version of heaven, which is very carnal with naked virgins and so forth. <clears throat> the Quran also teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross, 4, 157, 159. And like the Pharisees, they deny the necessity of an atoning sacrifice to remove the guilt of sin. So the reach of the Pharisees, greatly affected Muhammad and the Quran, greatly affected the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. So just, just a reminder. Now, with that out of the way, let's turn our attention to the prayer of the tax collector. The tax collector's prayer follows the self-righteous prayer of the Pharisee in order to contrast true religion and the correct approach to God with the false. <clears throat> and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector's total dependence on God for his salvation is demonstrated by his actions and his words. And there are a number of things to note in, this, uh, in his approach. Number, uh, first, unlike the Pharisee who stands right up front, now keep in mind, they're not in the temple. Only the priests could go in the temple. They're in the courtyard. There's courtyards for people to pray. There's one for the Gentiles, there's one for women, there's one for men. The Pharisees and the, the big shots go right up in the front. The publican's out in the back. He doesn't want to be seen. And he's, he's very humble. <clears throat> so unlike the Pharisee who stands close to the temple because of his confidence in self, the publican views himself as unworthy. He does not stand with the Pharisees and the religious leaders up front, but stays in the back. Okay, he came to beg, not to brag. He's a beggar. 
He did not come to be seen, but desired to keep out of sight. He knew that God was holy, and he was not. He's not holy. He's unworthy. The phrase afar off properly describes man's fallen men by nature and by record. Sin has separated all of us from Yahweh, and the only, God, only God's mercy can remove our guilt through Christ. Second, <clears throat> due to his shame, humiliation, and sense of guilt, he would not raise up his eyes toward heaven, even for a moment. And the Greek means literally he was not willing to lift up his eyes. He had no will or inclination to do so. He was burdened with a sense of guilt due to his sin. His downcast look revealed his understanding that his sinful record made him unworthy to come into God's presence. He was ashamed of his behavior because he knew that he had missed the mark of the personal holiness that Scripture requires, and he did not meet the moral law standard of perfect righteousness. Okay, he's very clear about that. He knows exactly where he is. He's guilty. He's a sinner. We see the same reaction in Ezra 9, 6-7. When godly Ezra began to pray and confess due to the people, priests, and Levites' great sin and not separating themselves from the heathen peoples around them. Okay, they come back, they're going to get the wall built, get the temple going and everything, and he finds out they've been intermarrying with the pagans. Again! The thing that caused them to apostatize in the first place and stumble. Here's what he says, And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face toward you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty for our iniquities. Doesn't sound much like a Pharisee, does he? The publican prayer also reminds us of the prodigal prayer, the prodigal son's prayer in Luke 15, 19. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Humility. Great humility and a full acknowledgement of sin and guilt look solely to God for grace and mercy. And I've witnessed to a lot of people. And you'd be amazed how full of pride people are. I witnessed to a guy in his 70s. I'm not a sinner. I am not guilty of sin. I do not need Christ. I do not need a Savior. Don't talk to me. And then I, you know, I've mentioned the guy before, you know, young guys. I'm at campus. I'm at a campus passing out tracts, witnessing to people, people telling me to f off and stuff. How dare you say I'm a sinner? You can go blank yourself. Threaten to beat me up. While he's telling me he's not a sinner. <clears throat> Third, the, Repub the publican repeatedly kept beating his breast, and the verb here indicates continuous action. This is a Hebrew expression of great sorrow. The physical body in conjunction with the mind beats the heart in self-accusation and grief. The breast contains the heart which is regarded as the seed of sin, the source of iniquity. 
Mark 7, 20-22, Jesus said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man from, from within. Out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. He beat his heart because he acknowledges his sin and thoroughly hates it. He despises his sin. He has a holy indignation at himself for his sins. He thinks to himself, if I, could, if I would, I would smite and crush this corrupt, sinful heart of mine that lusts after sin, that is a poisoned spring out of which flows the streams of sin and rebellion. He does not compare himself to others, and he does not blame others or make excuses for his sin. He fully acknowledges his sinful nature, his sin and guilt, and his penitent remorse cast him before God in order to ask God for mercy. He knows very clearly that only God's grace and mercy can save him. He can't save himself. Fourth, smitten and crushed by God's holy law, the publican cries out to God in prayer, God be merciful to me a sinner. Although this prayer is very short, it contains a number of things crucial to understanding the only way that men can be saved. Number one, note that he identifies himself as a sinner by nature and by his personal record. And in the Greek, his statement is stronger than our English translations. The article is there. He calls himself the sinner, which is equivalent to saying, I am a great sinner. Unlike the Pharisees, he acknowledges his sinfulness or fallen nature. He accepts what we call original sin. Psalm 51, 5, Romans 5, 12, and 14. And you could look at Psalm 32 and other passages. The inner pollution of sin or total depravity. Proverbs 4, 23, Jeremiah 17, 9, Matthew 15, 19, and 20, and Luke 6, 45. Hebrews 3, 12, and of course, Mark 7, which we just read. He understands that he cannot save himself. He cannot achieve sinless perfection or do anything in and of himself that merits eternal life. He has absolutely no hope in himself. He has an accurate assessment of himself due to his knowledge of Scripture. <clears throat> he knows that his only hope is God's mercy. And that if he is to receive salvation, it must be received as a gift from God. Look, Lord, I am vile, I'm polluted, I'm guilty. You are my only hope. His identification of himself as the sinner reminds us of Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Why did Paul say that? Was he out getting drunk and fornicating? No. Paul had persecuted the church and killed Christians. The publican understands that he has no intrinsic ability to remove his guilty record of sin before God. He knows that sin is a violation of God's law and thus it is always an act against the holiness, righteousness, and goodness of Yahweh. With David, he thinks, and this is from uh, Psalm 51.4, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 
The virus of sin lies in its opposition to God. The psalmist's sense of sin toward others rather tended to increase the force of this feeling of sin, which is against God. All his wrongdoing centered, culminated, and came to a climax at the foot of the divine throne. To injure our fellow man in sin, merely because in doing so we violate the law of God. The penitent's heart was so filled with a sense of wrong done to the Lord himself that all other confession was swallowed up in a broken-hearted acknowledgement of an offense against God. The publican had a godly sorrow, which was wrought in him by the Holy Spirit, who spiritually illuminated his mind, so he could see himself as the infinitely holy and righteous God could see him. He hates the sin, and he mourns over it because he knows that it displeased his Heavenly Father. Now, we need to keep in mind, of course, that Psalm 51 was written after King David had repented of a scandalous backsliding with Bathsheba. He committed adultery, and then he, of course, murdered Bathsheba's husband. He was a godly, pious saint who wrote most of the Psalms in the Psalter. The church is only hymnal. Yet he did not depend on his repentance, on his contrition or good works to remove his guilt, for he knows that he must confess them to Yahweh and have them ex expiated by blood sacrifice. Verse 7. He doesn't, he doesn't act like a pharisaical Jew. Well, yeah, I was bad then, but I'm good now. My good works outweigh my bad works, so you have to accept me. I've merited salvation in your sight. He doesn't do any of that. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm a rotten, filthy pig. Forgive me for my sins. And then number two. In his prayer, the sinner reveals that he looks solely to the mercy of God. Now, the word used for merciful by Luke, hilash theta, theta, in verse 13 is very unusual. Very, very unusual. In fact, this is a, what they call a habax logomena. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament in this form. <clears throat> the only other place it is found in the New Testament is Hebrews 2.17, though it is found here, where it means to make propitiation and refers to Christ's sacrifice to remove sin. So in Hebrews 2.17, it means to make propitiation. The noun version, hilas Terion is used in Romans 3.25 to identify Christ's sacrifice. Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a, here's the word, as a propitiation by his blood. It is also used this way in 1 John 2.2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And also 4.10. His son, the propitiation for our sins. Now, in Hebrews 9.5, it is used to describe the place where the blood is sprinkled, bringing expiation of sin and propitiation. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in once a year to the Holy of Holies. That's the only time anyone ever entered the Holy of Holies. You had the mercy seat, make a box with a cherubim on each end facing each other. 
covered in gold inside the cherubim um, inside the the mercy seat was a copy of the Ten Commandments the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat now remember in the Old Testament the special Shekinah presence of Yahweh now we know God's everywhere but the special Shekinah presence dwelt above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies that's where God's special presence was and it was such a holy thing that the Jews tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest in case God struck him dead. But he went in once a year and he took the sacrificial blood and he sprinkled it all over the mercy seat, placing symbolically the blood of Christ between God and the law broken, covering the sin of the people. In pagan Greek literature, this word is used with the meaning to make the gods propitious. In other words, to remove the gods to remove the gods' anger against sin. The word is never used in scripture of man doing good works or turning over a new leaf to expiate sin and thus propitiate God's just wrath against sin. It's always used of sacrifice, expiation leading to propitiation. Luke uses this highly unusual word because he wants his audience to understand that God's mercy towards the sinner is not simply to overlook, forget about sin, or pretend it does not exist, but rather to remove it through the expiatory work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's a very, you know, I know it's translated this way, but it's a very unusual word. Christ sacrificed his own life in a bloody, painful, humiliating manner, the just for the unjust, that he might remove our sin and guilt and reconcile us to God. All the Old Testament bloody sacrifices foreshadow, foreshadowed Christ's atoning work. So unlike the Pharisee who appeals to God by pointing to his great works, his, his merits, the publican asked God to be merciful on the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice, which the whole Bible tells us is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, on the basis of the blood of the Son of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Yahweh is infinitely holy and righteous, sin requires punishment. All sin is a rebellious challenge, insult, and affront to God's majestic holiness and infinitely righteous character. Consequently, a suitable punishment is simply the reflex of the holiness of God's nature, whereby he must honor himself against man's sin and rebellion. Here's Louis Burkhoff. Quote, the holiness of God also has a specifically ethical aspect in Scripture. And it is with this aspect of it that we are more directly concerned in this connection. The ethical idea of the divine holiness may not be disassociated from the idea of God's majestic holiness. The former developed out of the latter. The fundamental idea of ethical holiness of God is that of separation. But in this case, it is a separation from moral evil or sin. In virtue of his holiness, God can have no communion with sin. Job 34.10, Habakkuk 1.13. Used in this sense, the word holiness points to God's majestic purity or ethical majesty. 
But the idea of ethical holiness is not merely negative separation from sin. It is also a positive, has a positive content, namely that of moral excellence or ethical perfection. If man reacts to God's majestic holiness with a feeling of utter significance and awe, his reaction to the ethical holiness reveals itself in a sense of impurity, a consciousness of sin. See Isaiah 6.5. You see this when the prophets will encounter God, their response is, is one of dread and fear because they know they're guilty of sin. Yahweh's righteous indignation against iniquity must take the form of infinite wrath and a just judgment. Therefore, we read in Scripture that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The soul that sins must die, Ezekiel 18.4 and 20. And the person who does not have his sins washed away by Jesus' sacrificial blood must endure eternal punishment in hell or the lake of fire, Matthew 5.22 and 29 and 30. 1030, 2333, 1123, 18.9, Revelation 20, 14, and 15, etc. There's many other passages. Therefore, we are to pray for Yahweh to be merciful and forgive our sins so we can be reconciled to God. We must do so looking by faith to the expiatory and propitiatory atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Note how Paul was once a dedicated and fanatical Pharisee rejects his own works righteousness to lay hold of Christ and his righteousness. This is Philippians 3, 4 to 11. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, he's talking about himself as a Pharisee. If anyone else think he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of, in the law, blameless. Now, he means blameless in the sense of the Pharisees. He wasn't committing any outward, obvious, physical acts of sin. But what things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the critical phrase not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And then, of course, you read Romans chapter 7, and Paul says, he talks about himself as a Pharisee. Yeah, I used to think I was blameless. And then the Holy Spirit opened my eyes, and I understood what covetousness was. And I understood that I was a rotten, filthy sinner. Because I coveted things, I lusted after things that were wrong. that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. The appeal to God's mercy by the publican is proof positive that the Bible rejects the doctrine of salvation by works. Totally rejects it. Emphatically rejects it. There's no difference between Paul, Peter, and Jesus on the doctrine of salvation. They all teach the exact same thing. This idea that, oh, Peter taught this and Paul taught that, that's liberal nonsense. The liberals don't know what they're talking about. They're idiots. They're blind spiritually. Now, the term mercy refers to God's compassion. When he looks upon men in distress and misery due to the guilt of sin and due to his love and pity towards them, he provides a relief through salvation in Christ. And that's the only way to receive God's mercy. 
salvation in Christ. If you don't approach God through Christ, he will not listen to your prayers. You have to go to God through Christ. Divine mercy never contradicts or opposes God's perfect justice because it always flows from Jesus' redemptive work. Therefore, Yahweh's justice is always fully satisfied by Christ's death and perfect righteousness as he justifies the ungodly, guilty sinners. And it says that in Romans chapter 5, Christ justifies the ungodly. He justifies people who have a guilty record because he paid the price and they're placed. God set forth Jesus as an expiatory, propitiatory sacrifice so that he could remain just while justifying sinners who place their faith in his perfect redemption. Romans 3, 24 to 26. It's really quite amazing. In Scripture, God's mercy is often placed alongside of his grace. And that's Yahweh's unmerited favor to those who deserve wrath. It's not simply God having favor on somebody. It's God having favor on somebody who deserves the exact opposite. In order to emphasize that salvation originates with God and is executed by God, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus is fully man and fully God in one person, the theanthropic mediator. And our Lord's teaching regarding prayer and salvation is totally in line with the Old Testament scriptures. If the Pharisees knew the Bible, they would not act like Pharisees. And they wouldn't pray like Pharisees. Here's just some samples here. <clears throat> Psalm 4.1, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Psalm 9.13, have mercy on me, O Lord. Also 6.2. Psalm 18.50, he, he shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Psalm 23, 6, mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 25, 7, and 11, do, do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to you, mercy remember me. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalm 26, 11, redeem me and be merciful to me. Also Psalm 32, 1 to 6, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavily upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you. And then Psalm 39, 7 and 8, My hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. Psalm 41, 4, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now, who does that sound like? Does that sound like the Pharisee or does that sound like the publican? It doesn't sound like the Pharisee at all. And here's another one. Psalm 51, 1 to 4 and 7 and 9. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Hear my joy and make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Totally fits perfectly with the doctrine of salvation in the New Testament. Purge me with hyssop. In the Old Testament, hyssop was put on the end of a stick. They would sacrifice an, a, a lamb and they would mix the blood with some clean water and they would dip it in the blood and they would sprinkle it on the people signifying the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ redeeming the people. David is saying, wash me with the blood of Christ. Remove my sins. Remove my guilt. He's not saying, well, you know, God, I was really bad back then, but I wrote all these psalms. I pray to you all the time. I'm super holy now. Overlook my past. He didn't say that at all. Forgive me on account of the blood of Christ. Psalm 86, 3 and 5. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and an ab abundant mercy to all those who call upon you. And that's just a sampling. I could have gone on and on. But that fits perfectly with the prayer that Jesus sets forth in Luke. Now, all this raises the question, and this is very important. Have you had the same experience as this tax collector? It is indeed a blessed thing when God opens your eyes so that you can see your sinfulness and your guilt. You will never appreciate Christ and flee to his bloody cross until you see that in and of yourself you are guilty, helpless, and hopeless. You can't earn your salvation. Try it. Try going one day without thinking an impure thought. Try, try going a week without sinning. Oh yeah, well yeah, I never commit adultery. I'm not going to go rob my neighbor. Yeah, but you, you have unlawful lusts. And that's what condemned Paul in Romans chapter 7. You need to follow the example of this publican and cry out for God's grace and mercy as you look to Jesus' sacrifice to wash away your sins. Until your experience accords with his, you are still in your sins and are not ready to die and stand before God. Have you prayed like this guy? Have you prayed like the publican? Are you ready to meet God? Are you looking to Christ and his blood? And his righteousness? Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to stand before God when you die or on the day of judgment? If you think that you're good enough to stand in the day of judgment, then sadly, you are still spiritually blind and you do not yet really know yourself or the infinitely holy God who created the world and will judge all men. You must learn from David who wrote <coughs> Psalm 51, 17, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You have to go to God as a naked beggar in the dust while you're looking to Christ and his blood and his perfect righteousness. Come to God as a naked beggar. Do not look to your sin-stained works. Look solely to Jesus, bleeding and dying for on your behalf. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's the prayer. Now we have Jesus' own analysis. How wonderful. Jesus tells us what he thinks. In verse, verse 14, Jesus tells us the results of the two different ways to approach God in prayer. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Our Lord's I say to you is a common introduction to explanations or applications of his parables. 11, 8, 13, 3, and 5, 15, 7, and 10, 18, 8, etc., etc. Jesus says plainly, the tax collector was justified, declared righteous by God, the Pharisee was not. The full meaning of the verb, menos, literally having been justified, is crucial in biblical theology. Jesus, who knows all hearts and is intimately acquainted with all the proceedings in the throne room of heaven, of God in heaven, assures us that God has declared this tax collector to be righteous. It's a forensic term. It's a heavenly court. It's a court term. It doesn't mean he's a righteous in and of himself and he's meriting heaven. It means that God declares him righteous on the basis of the righteous of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the meaning here must be forensic. Just like in the epistles of Paul. For the publican had just admitted that he's a sinner. So God can't be saying, well, yeah, you're a righteous guy. I'm going to let you go into heaven. It can't be that at all. It has to be on the righteousness an alien righteousness, a righteousness of Christ. This declaration can only mean that the publican was declared righteous on the basis of the righteousness of a substitute, for the publican admits and confesses that he has no righteousness of his own. None. And I'm just going to give you a sampling of passages here. Colossians 3, 11b and 12. For he made us alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What happened to your sins? You are put on the cross with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that, he might, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So on the day of judgment, God doesn't see your guilt. He sees the righteousness of Christ. 1 John 2, 2, For he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also the whole world. 1 John 4, 10, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of, riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14a, but now in Christ Jesus, who you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Through him, we, both Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father. Romans 3, 24, 25, 26, and 28. Being justified freely by his grace of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood to demonstrate his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, faith in Christ, apart from the deeds of the law. How are we justified? By Christ. What does God see on the day of judgment? Does he see our guilt? No. He sees Christ and his righteousness. John three fourteen to 15 and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then, of course, Isaiah 53, 5, 7, 5 6, 7, 8, 10, 12, 11, 12. And as Moses lifted up, uh, excuse me, and he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, by his stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. And that same chapter says he'll be buried with, in the grave of a rich man, which is exactly what happened. And then when John saw Jesus coming toward him, first uh, John the baptizer, John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. <coughs> 1 Peter three eighteen For Christ also suffered for, once for sin, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. I could quote stuff like that for another hour. The Bible is absolutely clear in both the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 53 fits with the New Testament absolutely perfectly. And I didn't include Psalm 22 and all these other places. The tax collector was forgiven, pardoned, accepted, and approved by God, not because of his works, not because of his merit or intrinsic righteousness, for he admitted that his nature was polluted and that his record was one of guilt. He admitted it. Moreover, we know that God did not look upon his prayer and simply decide to overlook his guilt because the whole sacrificial system and the explicit teaching of the New Testament says that sin and guilt must be paid for in full. And we noted that the word he used for mercy is an extremely rare word that refers to mercy through expiation and propitiation. God justified the public and due to the fact his sin and guilt was imputed to Christ on the cross or reckoned to his account. As Paul says, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And then Romans 5.1.6-9, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely would a right, for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good one, man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners. Ungodly. Guilty. Much more then. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Can't get any clearer than that. The proud Pharisee and all those who attempt to work their way into heaven are rejected by God. Their bragging, self-righteousness, and works of charity are an abomination in God's sight. Because they're not there for us to depend on. And they're stained with sin. Luke 17.10, all of our best works are stained with sin. Because of our natures. Not simply because they all have a guilty record, a sinful record, and their good works are stained with sin, but because they depend on their works instead of looking to Jesus and his perfect redemption by faith. God cannot accept such men as, righteousness, as righteous in his sight because they are only righteous in their own sight. And thus they reject Jesus, the only way of salvation. That is why the first step in you becoming a Christian, you have to acknowledge your guilt, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge you can't save yourself, acknowledge that works won't do it, and don't depend on yourself. You've got you to gotta reject all that and look to Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only way to go to the Father's presence and dwell in perfect fellowship and peace with him is through Christ's atoning death on the cross and his perfect righteousness imputed to us or reckoned to our account. That's what the Bible teaches. And it teaches it very clearly from cover to cover. So we have to accept it as true. People must go to heaven by the cross of Christ, his expiatory propitiatory sacrifice, or they will not go to heaven at all. And that's just the reality that we live in. The most important decision you will ever make in your whole life is whether you will trust in Christ or trust in yourself or some humanistic false religion. In our pluralistic, multicultural society, it is very popular to say that all religions will lead men to heaven if they are sincere. I was taught that as a kid in elementary school. I went to a public school. Most people affirm that creeds and doctrines are really not important. Just be sincere and be a good person. God is love and he accepts all faiths, all sects, all philosophies, and all kinds. But Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who cannot lie, who created the world and everything in it, he says explicitly, there's only one way to heaven. One must believe in Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, you can't invent your own Christ. He is the only door. He's the only entrance to heaven and life everlasting. And he's your only hope of escaping the just condemnation of your sins. For only he paid the price in full by his sinless blood. And he renders perfect justice to God because he takes the believer's guilt on himself and then he imputes his perfect record of righteousness to, their believe, to the believing sinner. And you, you, the, the parable of the wedding feast. They had to have the wedding garments on. What do the wedding garments represent? The righteousness of Christ. <clears throat> like the believing publican, your sins will be blotted out. Psalm 51, 1-2. Removed as far as the east from the west. Psalm 103, 12. Or cast into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 19. Only then you will possess eternal life and be adopted into God's own family. The Pharisee goes home with his self-righteousness and his guilty record intact. He's guilty. Still guilty. The publican goes home forgiven and reconciled to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is completely contrary to fallen man's humanistic reasonings, but it is absolutely true. And you better believe it. It's absolutely true. Scriptures are not ambiguous. They're crystal clear on this issue. And then just really briefly, uh, a final explanation. Jesus ends his comparison of the two different ways that men seek salvation with a reason or statement of principle that explains what lies behind the two different prayers. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, 14b. This statement is very important, and it's found in various other places in Scripture. Isaiah 57, 15, Luke 14, 11, Matthew 23, 12. So let us examine brief, very briefly the contrast between pride and humility as it relates to one's view of redemption. The word pride refers to the very opposite. It's, it's, it's an opposite of humility. It, in the Hebrew, is gawan. 
is used as an antonym for humility in Proverbs 16.18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Better be of a humble spirit with the lowly. It is frequently coupled with arrogance. It leads to self-glorification, boasting, haughtiness, self-confidence. Sounds like the public, uh, the Pharisee, doesn't it? Sounds exactly like the prayer of the Pharisee. It is especially dangerous in religious matters because pride is the whole basis of salvation by works. The idea that you got an infinitely holy God and you're going to do enough to, <laughs> to so God's going to go, yeah, you're you're good with me. Come on in. You're so holy. You're so righteous that I accept you. Come on into heaven. What pride! The Pharisaical Jews boasted on their heritage and their works or law keeping, and thus focused the teaching. Uh, found the teaching of Christ's gospel insulting. They hated the gospel. How dare you insist that I am a sinner in need of salvation when I am righteous in need of nothing? And I've seen this in self-righteous people, in witnessing people that are obviously guilty of sin. Obviously. One minute, you know, they're, I'm not a sinner, and the next minute they're cursing at me and threatening to punch me in the face. Richard Baxter says, I think, so far as any man is proud, he is related to the devil and a stranger to God himself. Faith is a gift of God's grace received in regeneration. Therefore, all of our spiritual abilities and enlightenment, as well as all the good things we receive, are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thus, Paul says, do not be haughty, but fear. Romans 11.20b. For what makes you, 1 Corinthians 4.7, for what makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? As Satan is the father of lies, he is also the first creature destroyed by pride. Isaiah 14, 11a and 15. Your pomp brought you down to Sheol. You shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. God smites the object of which man is proud. David gloried in the number of his people. He was numbering the people, which means he was numbering his armies. And the Lord diminished them by fatal disease. Hezekiah boasted of his treasure. Look at this. Look at all these treasures I have. And then the Lord marked it out to be taken away. At the moment that Nebuchadnezzar was proud of his babble, he was banished from the enjoyment of it. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. The pride that God hates the most is the one which claims to earn salvation by works. It not only insults God's law by defining it down so filthy, rotten sinners can supposedly obey it, but it also tramples underfoot the Lord's infinite holiness that cannot overlook sin or dwell in fellowship with guilty sinners. In addition, it mocks and denies Jesus Christ and his perfect work of salvation. It renders the whole incarnation of Christ, the bloody cross of Christ, totally unnecessary. Remember the words of James, that the lowly brother glory in his, and it's implied here, future exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass, the flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. That's James 1, 9 to 11. So let us cast all of our pride and self-exaltation behind us, in order to give Jesus Christ all the glory that he deserves in his person and in his achievement of perfect salvation. 
you, know, you look at these old pictures, you know, YouTube, they have these things where it's all these old photographs from 100 years ago. And it's just amazing. You look at these pictures and everybody in the picture has been dead for 25 years. It's sobering. Like the grass, like the flower, it's beautiful, but it's going to pass away. Pride is also poisonous, of course, to interpersonal relationships for on account of it, people think of themselves too highly and put down others, which we saw in the prayer. While condemning pride and its effect on the doctrine of salvation, Jesus praises biblical humility. Humility is necessary for it leads us to acknowledge our sin, guilt, and helplessness before God. Humility looks solely to Jesus Christ and his redemption, for it recognizes that our hands and hearts are stained with sin, and our record is one of a mountain of guilt. And we see this humility in Abraham who confessed that he is but dust and ashes before God. Genesis 18.27 This observation is why the gospel is preached to the poor and to the humble, to those who mourn over their sins. Isaiah 61.1-2 Our Lord addressed this issue in Mark 2.15-17. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house. By the way, a tax collector. <clears throat> that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mark 2, 15-17. Now, Christ is not saying that some people are so righteous that they don't need the gospel. That's not what he's saying. But rather that self-righteous people are not receptive to the gospel. They're not going to listen to it. The Pharisees stood on their self-righteousness and they looked down on such obvious sinners as filthy scum who could not earn salvation. But Jesus knew that those humbled and brought to despair over their guilt were ready to hear the good news that the Lord has provided a way to remove guilt and be reconciled to God. Like Isaiah, who received a glimpse of God's holiness, they cry out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man, I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah 6.5 With David, they say, I acknowledge my sin, and my iniquity is ever before me. I have not hidden, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 32.5 are you like the tax collector who was humbled because of his knowledge of the law? He understood his guilt before God. Do you understand that all of your good works are stained with sin and corruption and thus merit nothing before God? Are you ready to acknowledge your sin before God and look by faith to Jesus Christ who expiated sin by taking it upon himself and paying the penalty in your place in full? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Romans 10, 9-11, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. <clears throat> for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's all it takes. Look to Christ by faith. You say, well, that's just too simple. That's just, that's just so too easy. But that's what the Bible says. Trust in Christ. Look to him. All of your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future. And then follow Christ the rest of your life. Not to be saved, not to earn anything, but out of gratitude for that precious salvation that Christ gave you. 
Look at this world. Look at the evil generation we live in. We live in the most crazy evil generation probably in the history of the whole world where murderers aren't put to death, but people put innocent babies to death so they can go out and be whores. We live in a terrible culture, a sinful generation. Save yourself from the sinful generation. Look to Christ now. Bow the knee to him as Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel. It is indeed amazing. We admit our guilt. We acknowledge our sin. We confess that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to merit anything in your sight. And we look solely to your dear Son, that sinless, perfect Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead for our justification, who sits at your right hand right now, interceding for us. We depend solely on his righteousness. We depend solely upon his blood. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. Cause us to live in terms of it, to be faithful, covenantally faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.